This is Tech Refactor Double Plus, where we have deep dive discussions that get into the details with researchers working on the front lines of technology policy. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. The Rural Digital Divide, which refers to the challenges of connecting everyone in rural America to the internet and the opportunities that it affords, is one of the most pressing and difficult to solve public policy issues in America today. Our center's ongoing work brings together experts from around the country who have been involved in digital divide policy to discuss the challenges and potential solutions to this problem. Last spring, we supported several research projects conducted by academics active in this area of research. Presentation of these projects was ultimately delayed by COVID-19, so instead of the roundtable discussions that we had planned to hold together in person last April, we met virtually this October to discuss this research. That discussion has been cut down for this podcast and will be presented in a series of episodes over the coming weeks as part of the Tech Refactored Double Plus series. These episodes will include short presentations from the authors and Q&A from other project researchers. First, we asked all of our authors to pre-record a short discussion of their research that could be shared with all the roundtable participants before they came together in October. We will start today by sharing the presentation recorded by Michael Cutros and Brett Skorup, discussing their paper on the effects of the FCC's High Cost Fund. Please be sure to check out our website for more information about our work on the Rural Digital Divide, including links to documents and more information on all the participants and the work that they presented at the roundtable. Good day, I'm I'm Brent Skorup. I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at GMU. Hi, and I'm Michael Cutros. I'm a Program Manager at the Mercatus Center. We wrote the paper uh, titled The Effect of the FCC's High Cost Program on the Extensive and Intensive Margins of Rural Broadband Deployment. The High Cost Fund is the largest portion of the Universal Service Fund. It's aimed at rural areas, the the high cost areas across the nation. Today, it's about $4.6 billion. And and Congress hasn't given given a lot of guidance to the FCC, but the high cost program is intended to make reasonably comparable telecommunications services available to rural areas at reasonably comparable rates. We think it's it's a ripe time to examine uh, these programs. Uh, Today, the high cost fund has has grown to about 17 sub-programs as FCCs over the years have have sought to reform and improve the high cost programs. Today, there's 17. This is, is one reason uh, that it invites economic analysis. You have all these sub-programs. You also have a competitive telecommunications sector that was not present in 1996 when, when the USF was created. Uh, today, according to FCC data, you have uh, 90% of Americans of, of census blocks have four or five or six or, or even more facilities-based providers. That was not the case in 1996, of course, when most households had a single telecommunications provider, their, their local phone company. So the competitive landscape has changed a lot since these, many of these programs were put in place. Finally, uh, another reason economic analysis uh, is, is useful in this context is that there are many disparities between and within states. And just to give you a a little flavor of this, in 2016, if you look at it from a per rural household basis, Alaska received about $2,000 per rural household. Texas, somewhere in the middle, got a tenth of that, got about $200 per rural household. 
And at the bottom, you've got Rhode Island, which got about 75 cents per rural household from the high cost fund. Uh, so all these things invite uh, economic analysis. And, and the questions, the research questions we have are, to what extent does the high cost fund affect broadband penetration in unserved areas? To what extent does high cost support affect quality of service, namely broadband speeds? And what variance, if any, are there between the high cost support subprograms? We don't look at all 17, but we look at a few of them. And, and with that, I'll turn it over to Michael for some of the data we use and how we answer those questions. Yeah, thanks, Brent. We evaluate uh, the subprogram efficacy in two different ways. First, we look at whether high cost support is correlated with broadband service being offered in a census block or not. And then we also test whether high cost support is correlated with better quality of service, namely download speeds. In our econometric results, we run separate tests for ADSL, cable, and fiber providers to see if there's any variance in the effects of these programs on different provider categories. So for our econometric test, we source data from three different sources. First, we source broadband service data from the FCC's Form 477 data. We get high cost support data from the Universal Service Administrative Company. We source a few control variables from the American Community Surveys. So the FCC Form 477 data has observations between December 2014 and December 2017. In that window of time, we observe high cost support for five active uh, high cost support subprograms. Uh, those subprograms are ACM, CAF BLS, CAF 2, the Rural Broadband Experiment, and the Alaska Plan. Um, so for the lower 48 U.S. states, we find that CAF BLS, CAF 2, and ACM all have positive relationships with ADSL penetration. Meanwhile, only CAF 2 has a positive and statistically significant relationship with ADSL service quality. Um, in addition, we find a significant negative relationship for both cable penetration and service quality uh, and high cost support in census blocks. We present separate results for Alaska because it has a specially designed subprogram called the Alaska Plan for its broadband providers. So we do find significant positive relationships between Alaska Plan subsidies and ADSL penetration and quality in Alaska. However, as Brent mentioned earlier, we estimate that Alaska receives almost $2,000 in high cost support per rural household. So that raises questions about the cost effectiveness of rural broadband support in that state. And I'll just mention an important limitation of our preliminary results is that our models do not allow for causal inference. For instance, the observed negative relationship between high cost support and cable service may only reflect that subsidies are dispersed in regions that cable operators generally don't serve. On the other hand, the negative relationship could indicate a crowding out effect. So yeah, I guess we would like to thank the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center for its support of this research and go Big Red. For the discussion so far today, it's been really great. We have one last paper that we will be uh, discussing. This is by Brent uh, Skorup and Michael Kutros. Brent Skorup is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and serves on the FCC's Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, or as we all love to call it, VDAC, and on the Texas Department of Transportation's Connected and Autonomous Vehicle Task Force. Michael Kutros is a program uh, manager for innovation uh, and governance at the Mercatus Center uh, working with Brent. 
His writings have appeared in USA Today and US News and World Report. I, I fully expect that he uh, is following in uh, uh, Brent and as well Sarah, I guess, his footsteps in becoming a uh, important uh, empirical uh, analyst in this field. So they'll be speaking uh, today the effect of the FCC's high cost program on the extensive and intensive margins of rural broadband deployment. So uh, Brent and Michael, handing things off to you. All right, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Gus and, and Elsbeth for putting this on, for everyone for staying till the end. Uh, we, we have the difficult task of making FCC rural subsidy programs exciting after lunch and, and before we break, but we'll, uh, we'll do our best. <clears throat> so our, our paper, I'll say a little bit about the motivations and, and Michael will, will talk about some of the data analysis so the, the Connect America Fund, the high cost, I mean, they're, they're, they're called by many different names. It seems like every FCC chairman reforms the high cost fund once again and adds their own twist to it. Actually today, a, a new phase of the high cost fund was, was launched. And so th this has been a regular feature. And these funds date back to the 1996 Tele Telecom Act, which requires the FCC with this very broad language to make sure that rural areas have reasonably comparable services at reasonably comparable prices as urban areas. You know, the problem is, as the FCC said in its own documents a few years ago, they don't analyze the efficacy of the programs. They don't see if their funding is actually making the changes that they expect to see, like broadband deployment. And so we take a look at that. And, and the programs themselves kind of lend themselves to a quasi-natural experiment because you see pretty narrow slivers of the country getting them. And, and frankly, a lot of these programs are intended for the local ILAC, the local phone company. Um, so you, you have these natural experiments. And so th those are some of the motivations. It, it invites data and analysis. And, and the questions we sought to answer are, to what extent does the high cost support affect broadband penetration in unserved areas? To what extent is high cost support affecting the quality of service? And what variance is any, what variance is there, if any, in the efficacy of the, of the subprograms? And by our count, there are 17 or so subprograms, and we, we look at five of those. And I'll turn it over to Michael. Yeah, thanks, Brent. Um, so I'll just highlight two main findings for, for the group today. So first, we find significant disparities in high-cost program support. So we look at this in a couple ways. So using the FCC Form 477 data, we look at um, among served blocks, what share are receiving any form of high-cost support. And just to highlight one example of a disparity there, uh, we find that Vermont, about 11% of served blocks are getting some sort of high-cost support, whereas in neighboring New Hampshire, uh, only about 3.2% of serve blocks are getting some sort of high cost support. And we also look at it in terms of high cost support per rural household. So using 2016 data, we find that on a per rural household basis, Alaska received almost $2,000 in high cost support, whereas Rhode Island saw less than a dollar uh, per rural household in support. Um, and we also find uh, disparity in terms of the per rural household basis between Mississippi and Alabama, despite the fact that they have similar geographies and numbers of rural population. And then the meat of the paper is the econometric results. 
um, that evaluate the different subprograms between 2014 and 2017. So we evaluate subprogram efficacy in two ways. First, we test whether high cost support is correlated with broadband service being offered in a census block. So this allows us to analyze its potential effects on broadband penetration in unserved regions. And second, we test whether high cost support is correlated with better quality of service, uh, which we measure in terms of download speeds, because that's the best indicator in the 477 data of quality of service. Um, we run these tests separately for ADSL cable and fiber providers to see if there's any differential effects between fixed wireline provider categories. Yeah, overall, our methods are uh, just, we run simple panel econometrics, uh, controlling for time and place fixed effects. We source data from the 477. Then we source our high cost support data from the Universal Service Administrative Company or USAC. Um, and then we source a few control variables from the Census Bureau's American Community Surveys, such as population density, housing density, and median income, all of which are considered significant factors in broadband deployment. So our sample runs from 2014 to 2017. And in the lower 48 states, we uh, observe disbursements under four active high-cost subprograms. Those are ACM, CAF-BLS, CAF-2, and the Rural Broadband Experiment. And then we also produce a separate analysis of high-cost support in Alaska um, because it has a specially designed high-cost fund called the Alaska Plan. So our key findings for the lower 48 U.S. states are as follows. CAF-BLS, CAF-2, and ACM all have positive relationships with ADSL penetration. Meanwhile, only CAF-2 has a positive and statistically significant relationship with ADSL service quality. And we find a significant negative relationship for both cable penetration and service quality and high cost support. Um, an important limitation of our analysis is that we can't um, make causal inference from the methods that we employ. Uh, we don't use an instrumental variable as Sarah, Brian, and Roberto have done in their papers uh, that they presented today. So without that instrumental variable or difference in difference or another sort of quasi-experimental method, our correlations could just indicate the factors that ex ante predicts support being provided to a block rather than the, po the ex post effect of the high cost support. So yeah, thanks to Gus and Elspeth for putting this together and uh, look forward to your comments and questions. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Brent and Michael. We have a, a couple of questions uh, in the hopper. We'll start with uh, Brian Whitaker, then uh, move to Tim and Sarah and uh, see where we go from there. So really good paper, guys. You guys crunched a lot of numbers here, but um, the, the first question I had was, um, you know, you do find this negative impact for cable. And I was actually just flipping through the appendices and it does look like you have data on you know, the number of cable connections over time. And so is that, is there data to back you? I mean, you hypothesize that you're saying that, you know, cable's already been built out in most of these areas. Does, I was just wondering if the data kind of backed that up. And I did find this, you know, appendix, I think it's table A4, that shows that it looks like there was, uh, an, a, you know, an increase in, in DOCSIS 3.1 over time, but some of the older technologies do look like they're decreasing. So it kind of looks like, it kind of looks like your point is, is, is well taken there. But the, the, the main question I have for you guys was, you know, why you use the, the 4.1 threshold instead of the 25.3. I know 25.3 came on in 2015 and you guys started in 2014. So I was just kind of wondering about that and if you had thought about doing a different, using a different threshold. Yeah, so to that threshold question. Yeah, so at the onset, we were 
considering just filtering by the FCC's definition. But when I looked at the USAC data on high cost disbursements, I found that actually in our sample, disbursements have been made to providers that were targeting 4.1, uh, deploying 4.1 service. Uh, so that was a lower bound. Obviously, a lot of USAC support went to faster providers, but we didn't want to exclude those observations uh, from our from our results. And then to the question, so table A4, that presents summary statistics for the entire panel. So that would include uh, cable in urban areas as well as rural. It could be the case that we have a lot of increases in cable deployment, but it may not necessarily be um, in the rural regions that high cost funds are targeting. Um, so we do present um, a, ta a table in the main body of the paper that breaks down cable, fiber, and ADSL um, service by whether a county is urban, mostly rural, or completely rural. Um, we do find among the three that uh, cable is the least common or is the least frequent in um, completely rural counties. Um, so at least in absolute terms, we haven't looked at it over time, but at least in absolute terms, um, the level is pretty low for cable service in, in the rural regions that we're uh, looking at specifically. Okay, uh, Tim. Thank you. Yes, excellent work. I, I found it quite quite uh, interesting to review. And it, some things kind of catch me as being very interesting. And oddly enough, I'm going through your paper and I see this concept of overcompensation to the uh, incumbent monopolists. And, and I just, that struck me as an interesting thing to think about and to, to ask. So, you know, what what's your solution to that bipolar issue of you know, providing just enough support to avoid, you know, the overcompensation of incumbent monopolists. I'm sorry, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with all the rest of your, your great work in the paper, but I was just curious what your thoughts were. Yeah, yeah, and thank, thank you for that question. It's actually a, a, a separate paper we just released answers, I think, part of that. And our, at the, the proposal is broadband vouchers for rural areas, but, you know, just, just a word on that. You know, these programs were largely designed for the world of 1998, where for most rural areas, your only provider was the rural ILEC, the rural telephone company. And so that's naturally where, where the money went. They were the only providers. Today, it's, it's a very different world where you have rural cable operators, you have rural WISPs, you, you have cellular and, and, and satellite for some people. Um, and so yeah, it, it's... It, so now the FCC has this, as you said, this bipolar problem where they get criticized for if they if they fund a monopolist, they get criticized because it's not it's not a great idea to fund a monopolist because they just often built you know are tempted to build into their price. Um, and if they're funding a non-monopolist, the non-monopolist is facing competitors who complain that they have to compete against a subsidized provider and. And so our, our solution, this other, other paper is uh, this idea of broadband vouchers where consumers are choosing the provider that works for them. And uh, you, you, do, you do have some, some of the lingering monopolist problems, but I think those are more manageable in a world of vouchers. And I was going to just comment on uh, vouchers um, in a previous discussion. I'll take a moment to do so now. 
the, the different funding mechanisms and way of dispersing the funding certainly can have different effects and is an area where certainly more study is warranted. But it, it is worth noting that former acting chairwoman uh, Clyburn and Commissioner McDowell, bipartisan uh, pairing there uh, from the FCC, have come out in support of as Congress is considering further broadband funding possibilities, putting more emphasis on vouchers and giving uh, folks, especially in rural communities, vouchers to spend on broadband instead of taking the top down, let's give the uh, carriers money to build out. Instead, let's give the users money to purchase, to create an incentive where service is needed and desired to build to. So the build out, build to distinction there is a really important one. I'll make just one one final you know, point, and, and people here might know this, but for listeners who don't, the FCC knows it has a problem in, in this area, and so they've they're increasingly moving to reverse auctions for regions, and and that's a way of at least getting monopolists to bid against each other and and bid down the price of, of service, but that has its own issues. Okay, Sarah. Yeah, I enjoyed reading your paper too. There was um, a lot of data in there. I wondered if you thought of other dependent variables than maximum download speed. Um, and Michael, you mentioned that was the data available in the Form 477. Could you talk a little bit about um, what what made you make that decision? Yeah, sure. At least regards to download speed, that seems to be the best measure for quality of service. Um, that we could find. Um, so looking at the intensive margin um, of the effects of USF support, that seemed to be the best measure that I had come across, at least. Um, I know in your question, you had mentioned adoption, um, looking at looking at those measures as dependent variables. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I opened the link that Roberto and Brian had shared to their paper on broadband adoption and its, uh, its benefits uh, for economic productivity. That would seem to be a very good measure as an alternative for our uh, look at the extensive margin, looking at uh, the effects on penetration, because that would be a nice continuous variable. Yeah, Sarah, are you familiar with the, I haven't looked, um, I know the American Community Surveys have uh, adoption data and like internet usage data. So I was, I was just curious, like if you have, if you have any familiarity with that data, um, like what, can you get that at the block level or is it aggregated to the county level? Um, yeah, the adoption data, subscribership data is available in different ACS data series. There's a five-year and a one-year, and they're at different levels, like different shapes. So you do have to do a little bit of data analysis to put that on your left-hand side. Yeah. Okay. And I believe, Will, you have a question uh, following up uh, on Brian's. Yes. So to build on Brian's point, and I, I am still thinking this through, but you might want to consider doing like an RDD or a discontinuity design on the 25.4 because it kind of acts like like a small threshold, right? Because below below that threshold, you get the you get the money. Above the threshold, you don't get the money. So it would kind of maybe help with your causal claim question. Just just like a general point, right? Yeah. These are also been very, very helpful. Like I, I want to go back at some point and, oh, the other question I actually had was, are you guys putting any of this data out? Like just the data that, you know, like the data sets as you put them together, like in any, any sort of format, those, I guess those are two points. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I appreciate that comment. Yeah. I'd have to think a little more on the regression discontinuity design, but yeah. So I guess if over time the FCC is raising the bar on 
the thresholds for support that could lend itself to that sort of uh, exactly empirical design so exactly yeah, so you that, you that trace really it over clever. right you would trace it over time yeah that yeah. would be um, a really really interesting little model yeah 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 thanks for that comment i really appreciate that yeah and also the reason i want the open data is because i, I want to steal it i like this idea so <laughs> yeah yeah so what i do the data files are quite massive yeah of course oh yeah but, yeah they're like yeah 10 i've got them all so yeah yeah, actually, Sarah had quote, posed a question about why we randomly sampled only 25% of tracks. And it's basically because I had to randomly, I just kept working downward until my computer didn't crash. So 25% <laughs> was the highest amount I could get loaded in. Yeah. But yeah, I, I could share the uh, data scripts that compile all the data. So yeah. I could post all the source files and this data code that compiles it all. Please do. Um, Send it on GitHub. Everyone share your data. Yeah. Thank you all. Uh, I think... Uh, this has been a, a big experiment, uh, some lessons learned, but uh, by and large, I, all your papers were great. Many of you are aware we've been doing this as an annual roundtable for the last several years, where uh, with this done, we are starting to think about the uh, spring 2021 roundtable and what the structure for that will be. I expect we are going to continue along this sort of trajectory focusing more on empirical projects and getting empirical discussions and research into uh, the discussion. One of the things that we've done with our past roundtables, which have been uh, less researched and more discussion focused, is really try to bring together academic researchers from around the, uh, the country, policymakers, especially DC-focused policymakers, into the same room with them and folks on the ground, stakeholders on the ground, the small ISPs, rural ISPs, folks doing stuff like Matt uh, with fixed wireless, the farmers, uh, uh, folks living in small towns and the like to actually talk about what are the needs and limitations uh, on the ground. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, we'll uh, hopefully be able to find a way to synthesize this in a online environment. I am confident that in the spring we will still be uh, online. Um, but thank you all uh, very much. I'm Gus Hurwitz and I've been your host for this episode of Tech Refactor Double Plus. I hope that you found this episode as much of a universal service as I have. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu, or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. You can listen to or download our podcast on our website, and also find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series, hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The Nebraska Governance and Technology Center is a partnership led by the Nebraska College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska. Colin McCarthy produced and recorded our theme music. Casey Richter provided technical assistance and advice. Elspeth Magilton is our executive producer, and Lysandra Marquez is our associate producer. Till we meet again, keep closing that digital divide. Yeah.